Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today uh, is the third episode in my lab lockdown series, in which I talk to graduate students sort of about their experience during the coronavirus pandemic and how that's changing everything. And so today I'll be talking to Steve Rathjay, who is a PhD student at Cambridge, and uh, he's also a Gates Scholar. So Steve and I have enjoyed a correspondence for a while because, you know, we have sort of similar interests, both uh, social psychologically as well as, you know, sort of in writing for a general public. And he recently published a piece in Psychology Today, which I thought was very good, and it sort of looked at a social psychological perspective on the coronavirus and everything that's happening sort of in, in current events. And uh, I just wanted to dig into that a little deeper with him as well as just sort of check in and, and, and see how things are going and get his take on what's happening both in, you know, sort of for his own experience and in the world more broadly. Uh, so one thing I'll just flag up front here is that I think uh, I may be experiencing some microphone troubles right now, which has introduced a little bit of noise on my end. And I think it might be from having drugged my microphone sort of across the world between being in England, Singapore, and Seattle over the last couple of weeks, and perhaps I didn't appreciate that. So I'm going to look into that, but I just wanted to flag that up front, but hopefully it's not too bad of an issue here. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening. If you want to follow the show more closely, you can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my newsletter, uh, which you can find on my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. That's sort of my most personal form of writing that I do on a regular basis. And so if you'd like to check that out, um, it's it's definitely one of my favorite sort of forms that I, I consistently engage in. So anyway, uh, check out that article by Steve on Psychology Today. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Steve Rathje too. Uh, so without further delay, uh, here is my friend and colleague, Steve Rathje. Yeah, so where where do you find yourself at personally in all this? Do you do you find it difficult to do work? Have you been, you know, sort of just chugging along? Where 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 are you at right now? Um, I, I think it's a mix of things. Um, I mean I certainly I, I'm where everyone else is at in that I find it quite anxiety provoking. No kidding. And I've I've had moments where, you know, I really need to take time to myself. I need to um Talk, talk to friends, family members, call my parents, check in on them, see how they're doing. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I've been trying to not put pressure on myself to work because like there are much more important things than work in this situation. I mean, since we are in, this is a life or death situation for many people, um, I, I think there are more important things to worry about. But at the same time, I think that uh, work has often always been a joy to me and that I try to work on things I'm passionate about. So I, I, I think I have been working a bit both on some of my research projects. I've been doing a few projects related to coronavirus sort of tangentially and um, also spending time writing as well. I, I mean, I got into psychology and theater and writing and all my interests because I, I loved to do these things and I didn't necessarily find them as work so yeah to me often my free time and work are sort of indistinguishable and I think a lot of academics and artists are sort of that way because they are pursuing passion careers 
um, oftentimes. So I, I think a lot of us do find um, solace in our work. Um, what about you? Where, where are you at? Yeah, I think one thing sort of on that end that I'm uh, struggling with is that a lot of the stuff that uh, I was working on previously, though no doubt I find super interesting, uh, it doesn't seem quite as uh, important in the face of the world being on fire, you know? Right, right. It's sort right, of right. hard to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to set that aside and just pretend like it's not happening. Back to just sort of business as usual. And it really makes me think, you know, I, I've always been sort of fascinated with how um, the World Wars, especially World War II, changed research because... Um, you know, so if you if you just sort of like look at general trends and research, like no one was really doing anything. Uh, it's not like people. It's not like there. Like there's a certain sort of t time in which you don't find academic papers uh, unless they're sort of obviously related to you know some sort of technological effort to to you know improve war making capabilities. But uh, and part of the explanation is that you know people were just busy. They were they were drafted into war and shit, and they were they were busy like firing guns and shit but the other thing is that um it's hard like you just can't bring yourself to focus on anything else and nothing else uh you know seems like oh well, this is you know a worthwhile problem to work on. i'm just gonna feel like other stuff's not happening and we see that sort of in all of the work that came out after world war ii right like you have uh Henri Tajfeld, mm -hmm. an intergroup mm -hmm. uh you know psychologists you know where a lot of the, the basis of that was was sort of the aftermath of uh, World War II, and um, so I'm starting to gain. I've always sort of wondered that, be like, really, like you guys, like, just was there really nothing else that you could think about? And I'm starting, starting to get a um, more of a, a, an appreciation for that. Um, in 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 terms of wow, literally, it's it's hard to bring myself to focus on the things that uh, you know I've otherwise would find very engaging. Right. Yeah, and I feel like on a smaller scale that happened after the 2016 election, like so many people started working on political psychology, misinformation, myself included, I, I got very interested in political psychology and moral psychology, sort of, you know, around the time and after of the 2016 election, and it seemed like that was sort of what was relevant, our current sort of political climate in the US. And now that we're having this huge shift, I feel like there's going to be so much research out of that. And if you spend any time on academic Twitter, you just see that so many psychologists are working on this, um, uh, which is very, which is very cool. And I, I admire a lot of the work that's being done right now. But um, I, I think a lot of it is motivated by, you know, this is what seems relevant right now. And I think a lot of people are trying to, um, you know, find ways to help with their current expertise. So I'm really curious how this might shape research going forward. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the future is going to be. I don't know what the next year is going to be like, but I'm sure there will be so much social science research published on this. Um, yeah, and I mean, I've been shifting some of my projects to work a little bit on this. Like, uh, I was already doing some research on, uh, I was collecting Twitter data, like social media data from the US for the past several months. Um, uh, up till now, I'm still sort of collecting data. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll analyze this in light of coronavirus related themes and some some themes I'm interested in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, we want to help in one sense, but I think it's also a way for us to try to cope and to try to understand and to try to, 
yeah, process the situation. Um, anyway, so how are, how are things going at Cambridge right now? What's what's the status over in England and then specifically at your university? Um, things are okay in England. Um, I'm happy that the UK finally instituted a lockdown recently. So like we're legally not allowed to go outside besides just um, to go grocery shopping and then to get like one form of outdoor exercise a day. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I think the UK had, was smart to make that decision. They initially went for um, the herd immunity route. That was like their early decision that they wouldn't do anything. Uh, very bad move, in my opinion. So I'm glad they turned around. Um, yeah, and I mean, Cambridge has been very um, sort of strict from the get-go about getting as many students as possible out of the university. And uh, my college, Trinity, was especially strict about moving all students out unless they had some exception or some special permission. And um, I was able to get an exception just because traveling back to the U.S. is kind of hard and um, didn't want to put a risk to my parents. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm staying here and it's, <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's very like eerily empty right now. The streets are so empty here. Um, so it definitely has like an apocalyptic vibe right now. Um, yeah. So you're stuck at Trinity still. How many other people are there? Are there people that you can like commune with in any meaningful way? Like can you see other human beings or like, do you go outside for runs or what does that look like for you? Yeah, I've gone outside for exercise sometime. Um, Everyone has moved out of my, uh, so I live in like sort of uh, this little like apartment kind of owned by Trinity, but also kind of an outside apartment. And I used to have like four other housemates and they've all moved out. So have this big building to myself now. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I talk virtually to a lot of people who are still here. I mean, everyone in my lab is still here. Um, my uh my supervisor and my lab mates and we have lots of skype meetings so yeah been a lot of uh virtual connection but not a lot of you know face to face yeah so okay so what's your take on that now that it's been going on for a while right because in some sense uh you know there's less interaction with people because um, you know, we, we just can't, we can't physically go near them. But in some sense, I do feel like I am interacting with people more often than, uh, I, I would on a sort of regular normal schedule basis. Cause I'm, I like, I am making an effort to reach out to them and be like, Hey, we're going to talk now for X period of time, whether that's lab mates or whether that's friends or whatever. So now that this sort of been playing out for, uh, you know, at least a week or you know, maybe more, how, how do you feel like that? What's, what's your sort of take on that right now? Yeah, I mean, my initial take is that it would have led to less social connection just because, you know, we are physically apart from each other. So that's sort of what I thought would happen. But I think because we are all in this um, situation together, we're sort of having the shared experience of going through some sort of very scary historic event together. I think we have been, you know, taking a break from work, trying to reach out to friends and family and loved ones and uh, doing a lot of Zoom chats. So, I mean, I think a lot of people have had the experience that it has ironically made them feel more connected. It has made them feel more social. And I also think it has just caused a change in priorities as well, because when you're faced with some sort of truly existential threat, when you're faced with... Um, mortality and sort of all uh all of these scary issues anxiety 
then I think you do want to reach out to people you care about. So, I mean, yeah, I think it has been making people more connected in that way. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, even more than just sort of connecting with colleagues, it's, it's, it's nice to have an opportunity to reach out to people that you wouldn't otherwise, uh, you know, sort of talk to on a regular basis. I mean, so I have some uh, close friends from sort of high school and early college from South Korea, and, you know, I, I, I've sort of intermittently kept in contact with them, but it sort of dropped off over the last couple of years. And now I get to I have reason to go back and be like, yo, how's it going? What's up? Like, how are things over there? How's your family doing? Like, you know, give me the report, all that sort of stuff. And I think that's that is that is something that I'm uh, at the very least thankful for and appreciate the opportunity to do in these circumstances. Yeah. And I mean, I think it will after this pandemic is over, after we've gone through the situation, I think it will cause a societal change such that a lot more people um so i mean technology has often been something we uh say brings us apart like people go on their phones uh social media does all these negative things to us but i think we're seeing that right now it is really our savior and as it, it it is what is connecting us to each other sort of against all odds and i think there will be sort of a societal change uh, in how we view technology after this event, I think we will view it as sort of it it can be much more positive and it can build bridges between people. And I also think society will be restructured in such a way that people will be much more comfortable working from home and telecommuting. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like people will um, sort of adapt to the situ situation, especially Generation Z or some of the younger generations that, you know, I think this is really going to define sort of uh their future sort of going through this experience at such a young age i mean us too we're we're young as well um as uh as millennials um but yeah yeah i do feel like there's a little bit of, of mother or necessity is the mother invention there uh which is that people for a long time say oh you know we'll get our system set up to do uh remote work and then you know after two years, you know, they don't have that going or whatever is the lag there. And then uh, all of a sudden this hits and then you have a week to figure out how to get everyone mobilized to, to be able to do it. So I, I do think that it's uh, spurt, uh, sort of brought on a spurt of sort of technological growth that I certainly see, I think we'll see the, the sort of continuation of after this is all over. Right. And I think there are, um, I mean, some radical changes are happening and that uh, the UK, for instance, announced... I mean, I just sort of saw this in headlines, but announced that it would house all homeless people. And uh, a lot of people's reaction to this is like, you know, why weren't they doing this all along if they have the resources to do it now? And I think uh, we'll see that sort of in sort of a disaster situation like now that society might be able to do things that, you know, people had not thought were possible before. So, I mean, I do think that it, it might take sort of major situations like this to restructure society and social systems and i mean i can't predict how it will all turn out but um i, I think this will cause a shock to the system that will sort of restructure the world as we know it afterwards yeah i definitely i definitely agree with that and i i, I want to be optimistic about um sort of what you're saying about a lot of these social issues that a, a sort of smaller faction of, of people have appreciated the, the need for but now i think are coming sort of broader in, in the ways people are understanding them. So not only with, with homelessness, but of course, healthcare in, uh, in, in the US, I think people are going to be much more willing to reevaluate 
what is possible and what we should be doing, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that you know maybe some people have been pushing for over the last few years, but has not gained widespread appreciation or traction. Right, right. I think there will be more support for universal healthcare after this. And I also think that we will be sort of more prepared as a society for when another pandemic might occur. Because a lot of people have been voicing concerns, like Bill Gates notably, for instance, um, but a, a number of other intellectuals have said this is one of the major existential threats that could damage society, a pandemic. And um, I mean, you know, hopefully we'll find, you know, a, a way out of this pandemic. I mean, it, it is causing a lot of damage already, but hopefully this will prepare us and all the research that's being done and all the effort that's being put into um, sort of understanding this will help prepare us for when, you know, the next pandemic might arise. So one thing I'm interested to sort of hear where you're at on is, um, so I know you're interested in theater and you have a background there. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I know you can't go out to the theater right now, unfortunately, but uh, I was wondering, yeah, what do you, what do you think, uh, sort of what's your, what's your take on how all this is going to impact theater? What do you think it's going to look like? Uh, what, do, well, yeah, what do you make of everything there? On the point of theater, I am quite sad, sort of, that, you know, all theater has been shut down, which, which is absolutely necessary to have shut down Broadway and West End theaters, for instance. But um, I am sad for, uh, you know, all of the theater artists and all the theater actors who, um, you know, theater is already a very precarious business, and it's already sort of a by-contract business. Uh, that sort of the fact that, you know, theater artists have to be unemployed for who knows how long is is quite sad. Um, and I, I, I think it is quite ironic. And Sarah Rule, who's one of my favorite playwrights, uh, has written a few, she's written a New York Times article and a few s speeches about this, but she's spoken about how, you know, as, as actors, as theater artists, sort of our medium is presence. Our medium is is the magic of air and bodies and space and existence and being together in person. Uh, and right now it's ironically that that thing, that magical thing called air is sort of what carries germs and it's what we're trying to stay away from. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, I think that is quite sad. So um, yeah, I, I wonder how theaters will find their way out of that, for instance. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I uh, I saw you show that, and I didn't think that was an especially beautiful uh, sort of take on it, and and just an appreciation of the the concept of presence as a as a sort of currency, as as what it means to engage with that medium, and the fact that that is the exact thing that we're not allowed to have at the moment. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I wonder. I sort. I feel like there are two possibilities. I feel like we might after this epidemic, want a revival where we go out and we speak to each other in person again. We go to concerts and plays and parties, or we might also just be much more comfortable being at home and speaking to each other virtually. And, uh, um, you know, I, I would be quite sad if sort of theater, which is in some ways a dying art, less and less people are attending theater. I'd be sad if this pandemic made theater die off more, but, um, Part of me also wonders if theater could adapt to the situation. I know some theaters are now live streaming plays. Like they, I'm not sure if they're still doing that now that it's gotten worse, but I know some were initially like live streaming plays. They had the actors come in and uh, yeah, people could watch the live streams for free. And I, I, I mean, I do think theater will have to 
sort of adapt to the technological age if it wants to bring in a younger audience and more people. And um, yeah, I mean, I think this this whole event will be quite a challenge for theater as an art. God, you know, uh, you know what I watched recently was uh, Jaws to sort of take it from theater to to movies. Do you, do you know the the like classic uh, movie? The movie, yeah. yeah. So yeah, it, of course. So it turns out. So I was watching this because I, I mean, it's like it's just a well-regarded movie. I'd never seen it. So I was like, okay, so this is gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and it turned out to actually be this sort of perfect metaphor for a pandemic of all things. Uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. I thought it was really funny because basically, okay, so the so the setup of the movie is that, um, so we see this, like, you know, person die on a beach uh, in the water, and, you know, the audience, you know, it's called Jaws. We sort of, we sort of know that there's, you know, a shark out there. But um, basically what the conundrum in the town is is that the essentially the the guy who's in charge of security for the beach keep people safe sort of like a lifeguard sort of like sheriff i don't know what the fuck his his actual role is but whatever he's he's got going on right so he's like okay look we need to shut down the beach because there's a shark out there and people go out there they're gonna get fucking you know shark attacked um but then the town officials the political actors look at the economic incentives and saying look if we tell everyone that there's a shark out there there's going to be a panic and no one's going to go to the beach no one's going to spend their tourist dollars and we need this is our prime tourist season uh and we uh you know need uh that money there's going to be huge economic uh catastrophe for our town and so it's the exact same framework that uh we're dealing with in the pandemic to right yeah right it's it's the contrast between okay so we've got the the public health incentives uh uh, and then we have the economic incentives and those are at odds and you have the scientists and the sort of people who are in charge of safety saying one thing and you have the politicians uh, saying, look, don't panic. Let's just keep going. And then that is, uh, you know, in Jaws, it leads to more people getting eaten by fucking sharks. And you know, it's the same forces that I think in this case, you know, will, will have led uh, the places that have not had as good mobilization of response to to sort of uh, that's that's kind of the same forces that led to that, you know. Yeah, that is kind of a perfect metaphor for what is yeah going on in the U.S. And I've been sort of quite sad and also quite perplexed by yeah Donald Trump's response to the pandemic. Um, it's I I personally think it's quite crazy that you know the number of cases in the U.S. has risen above the number of cases in China already, and he's still sort of downplaying it, not instituting any lockdowns like any other countries. And it seems like the economic incentives are at play. He's sort of the the valuing the economy and, and he probably think he wants to downplay the crisis and have the economy be good so that will help him with his re-election but yeah it's it's quite sad and uh just thinking about i guess the number of preventable deaths these this situation uh could lead to it is quite yeah and um i thought he would go a different way earlier because earlier on he was saying he seemed to double down and he had all these tweets like, uh, we are at war with an invisible enemy. And he seemed to be trying to portray himself as like a wartime president, um, probably trying to get that uh, rally around the flag effect, it's called, where, you know, if you kind of double down against a common enemy, uh, people will sort of uh, have more support for like a strong authoritative leader. Um, so yeah, I'm quite surprised that he's kind of gone in the other direction, but uh, you know, he is very unpredictable. So 
So yeah, so uh, you wrote a really interesting piece um, that touched on this sort of topic for Psychology Day, and I, I was reading it again this morning. I thought it was I thought it was a really good analysis of a lot, of bringing in a lot of different pieces. So let's maybe unpack some of the more some some of the stuff that you said in there. So what do you, I guess, what do you, yeah? So what do you make of um, the sort of power of the metaphor of going to war against an enemy? From a metaphorical, from a psychological perspective, what do you think that that's the right way to do it, or 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 what do you? What's your what's your sort of take on that? Yeah. Um. So yeah, my my piece was called "Will the Coronavirus Bring Us Together or Split Us Apart?" and I was essentially interested in comparisons of the coronavirus situation with events like nine eleven, because after nine eleven, for instance, there. Um, sort of presidential approval ratings for Bush soared, and uh, people sort of uh, divisions broke down, there was less political partisanship, as it was reported, and uh, people sort of formed this collective in-group identity against sort of a common out-group. And as a lot of social psychological research shows, that we can sort of... Um, having a common enemy can sometimes be good. It can help you bond with sort of another person and form this common in-group identity. And uh, since there were a lot of comparisons of this situation with 9-11, I was wondering whether it would go uh, sort of in this direction where, you know, we'd all sort of come together, we'd have this collectivistic identity against a common threat, or whether a pandemic was a very different type of disaster. Um, because I noted in the article that uh, this is a very different kind of common enemy because the common enemy lives within other people. Uh, in, in some ways, everyone is a threat. Everyone is a contamination threat. And um, there's a lot of research sort of on disgust and disease avoidance and contamination fear that suggests that sort of these emotions of disgust and contamination fear can... Uh, bring out some racist impulses, some more judgmental impulses, can essentially make you um, despise outgroups or other people more. Um, so there are a lot of forces of a pandemic that are quite different from sort of other situations. And uh, moreover, we're all engaging in social distancing. We are all distant from each other. So since we are physically apart, since we are social distancing, this might lead to some sort of emotional distance as well. Um, and I mean, I also noted that, uh, you know, a lot of scholars like Rebecca Solnit have talked about how um, in response to threats or disasters, uh, there are a number of myths that disasters lead to sort of selfish people who are just trying to sort of help themselves in a given situation. But often the response is prosociality and altruism. Often the response is the opposite of what we expect um, but, you know, I was wondering whether this would be the case for a pandemic because sort of looking historically at the Spanish flu, we don't really have uh, records in sort of history or of the Spanish flu sort of bringing people together against a common enemy in the way that, for instance, World War I or World War II did. I mean, I think wars create, you know, common in-group identities, bring people together, but uh, the Spanish flu had sort of a huge impact, killed like 50 million people, um, infected about a third of the world's population. And it seems like a lot of history uh, seemed to forget it or people wanted to move on and not linger on sort of it as they linger on the hero heroic deaths in wars or sort of tell stories of that time. 
so I so I I'd like to sort of dig into that Spanish flu example because I feel like that's a really good uh, sort of case study for comparing the the war metaphor to actual wars, right? And so I think one thing that's really interesting to flag here is that uh, you, know, you sort of touch on this in the cultural imagination of the people uh, up until you know a few weeks ago, no one was thinking about the Spanish flu's impact on world history and trajectory, even though from a purely, you know, sort of a pile of dead bodies standpoint, that is one of the most dramatic events of the 20th century. But no, we think about um, the world wars, we think about the Cold War, um, which is, you know, sort of very antithetical in terms of the the number of dead bodies. And then, uh, you know, stuff like uh, flashball memories, like 9-11, Pearl Harbor, those sort of things. And it just doesn't seem like uh, a pandemic, however dramatic it might be, necessarily ranks in the uh, sort of pantheon of, of world-defining events. Uh, uh, and I'm wondering, yeah, and I think that that sort of ca- casts some doubt on whether or not the, um, you know, that metaphor, the, the going to war against the hidden enemy one, is, is really psychologically the same sort of thing. Uh, right. No, I mean, I think it is quite different in a number of ways. And one of those is sort of, as you noted, the temporal aspect. It is, it feels like, you know, the pandemic is kind of getting worse and worse. We're not at peak yet. We don't know how long it's going to go on. Whereas, you know, 9-11, sort of everyone who was sort of, you know, old enough to sort of have a memory of it remembers exactly where they are, has those flashbulb memories. Um, so yeah, I, I do think it's a different kind of situation. Um, I mean, I think this might be a case where clever framing is important. And uh, one of sort of my interests in psychology is I am interested in some of George Lakoff's work and how um, we don't just talk with metaphors, we think with metaphors. And if we frame something in a particular way, um, he talks about how we frame, for instance, arguments as war. Uh, I defended my point or I attacked your argument. That has us think of arguments in a very particular way. So, I mean, when Trump, although I disagree with a lot of his framings, and I thought calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus was quite, you know, racist and a very sort of offensive thing for him to do, I, I, I thought perhaps it was wise to say, you know, we are at war with an invisible enemy, because war is something people can conceptualize. Uh, we have a lot more difficulty conceptualizing something that is invisible, like, um, like a virus, we don't even sort of know it's there. So uh, I mean, I think this is a situation where thinking carefully about framing might be important. Okay, so I think what there's two separate things for me going on in that. So so the first is the motivational component, which I think I pretty much agree with you, is that um, war is an incredibly motivating thing. And if we look throughout history for the vast, vast majority of wars, we've not had any trouble mobilizing the people to sort of get out of bed and, and tackle the problem, right? Especially uh, young people, especially young men. Uh, and so I think one sort of red flag in that is that, well, now it's, uh, you know, sort of young people who it turns out that it's harder to motivate. So uh, I, I, do think, I do think that the motivational component there, though, in terms of framing it as, as war is useful. But here's why I, uh, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a second piece, which is I think where the metaphor falls apart, and that's in, in the perception of uh, a hidden enemy, in the perception of an agent that you can't see, someone behind the, 
the curtains pulling the levers and, and doing a funny voice, so to speak, you know? And uh, it's that when we perceive the action of an agent, of another person, it, it's always interpreted in light of their goals, right? We say, here's what they're trying to accomplish. And I'm, you know, sort of interpreting their uh, behavior, their actions in terms of my understanding of their desires. And there has to be at least uh, uh, some sort of dance and interplay between those two where uh, you're looking at the one as a function of the other. And I think the reason that it's hard to get people on board with the coronavirus as a hidden enemy is that the coronavirus does not have a goal, right? Even uh, if, if you conceptualize it as killing people, it is... Um, uh, that's not necessarily the case, right? Because if it killed everyone, that would also kill the virus itself because it would have no more hosts, right? So I think the problem with this is that you, uh, if you look at how people perceive hidden agents and that sort of stuff, you need to be able to understand what's going on in terms of some sort of intentional framework. And that simply doesn't exist for something uh, that behaves in a way that a pandemic does, in the way that a virus does. Um, I think that's true. And I, yeah, I think that's why it is very challenging. And yeah, I mean, I'm not really decided on whether war is the best framing. And I think social psychologists are doing interesting research on framing coronavirus issues. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I agree. The lack of intention is quite hard. Also, I, I do think there are unintended consequences of the war metaphor. And this has sort of been noted, um, the war metaphor has often been used to describe uh, cancer. Uh, sort of, we we fight cancer where uh, uh, someone's a trooper if they are, um, you know, dealing, struggling with cancer. And uh, this metaphor has been criticized a lot, uh, first by Susan Sontag, who was sort of a literary critic, and then by psychology researchers later who sort of tested this, uh, the effectiveness of the war metaphor for cancer. And it had all these unintended consequences like uh, for instance if you say if you use war metaphors to describe cancer um, sort of people who succumb to cancer as an illness are viewed as sort of more responsible for the illness like they're viewed as not having fought hard enough so I, I mean there is a potential that you know if we if we misuse the war metaphor here it might similarly lead to unintended consequences so um, yeah I mean I think framing is a tricky issue to do in this sort of way. And um, yeah, I might stay away from figuring out how we frame the coronavirus and, and more talk about how we frame our sort of responsibility to others. And um, I know Molly Crockett has done some really interesting work just recently about uh, sort of using moral messages to motivate action about the coronavirus saying, that if you if you use messages deontological messages like saying it's your duty to uh, protect others to stay at home, this can help motivate people. Um, we might need to focus perhaps more on that. And um, I mean, one more point is that uh, I think there's only so much framing can do until government action is needed. And uh, you know, the UK is under lockdown, India is under lockdown, and uh, yeah, framing can can do quite a bit, but. Uh, you know, making it law that you can't leave the house is sort of, I think sometimes, you know, what you need to do. Um, and I, I, I wish the U.S. was doing that right now. Yeah.
Yeah, and I think that work that you mentioned with Molly Crockett was also done with Jim Everett. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk today. It's it's fun to uh, to catch up and uh, also discuss your article, which if people haven't listened to, they uh, should go check that out because I think I do think you really touch on a lot of good points. And even if it's not necessarily the final analysis and all of them, I think you raise a lot of the important questions that psychologists should be. Uh, thinking about the frames in which they should, you know, uh, potentially be approaching them. So uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to see you uh, fully intellectually engaged throughout all of the uh, chaos. And I look forward to seeing what else you produce out of it. Thank you. Yeah. And it, it was great to talk to you today. Um, as you know, I am a fan of your podcast. So it's great to, you know, finally be on it and talk to you again. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me on. Okay, so that was my conversation with Steve Rathday of Cambridge. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, you can do so at Steve J 2 That is R-A-T-H-J-E-2, uh, the number. And uh, you can also check out his article on Psychology Today. If you just sort of Google his name in Psychology Today or um, uh, yeah, just uh, find him on, on Twitter and, and the article will be there. And then uh, so if you want to follow me, that's at Cody Commerce uh, on Twitter. And then you can also check out my newsletter, which you'll find on my website, CodyCommerce.com slash newsletter. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll uh, be sure to turn out more content soon.